Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, Fox News is a flagship of right-wing disinformation, racism, and hatred, and Tucker Carlson is its figurehead. Carlson spews harmful nonsense like it's his job, which it is, and he gets some $10 million a year for it. But did you know that if you have cable, you're paying into that income? We'll talk about how that works with Tim Carr, Senior Director of Strategy and Communications at the group Free Press. And speaking of pollution, polluting companies tell us every day how they're invested in the future. We've heard corporations en masse say, profits what? We're all about the people now. There's a certain amount of people who make the problem pretending they're the solution that we can see through. But there's still plenty going on behind the scenes. We'll talk with Lynn Paramore, senior research analyst at the Institute for New Economic Thinking, about how hedge funds get in the way of all sorts of companies making the big changes we need to fight climate disruption. That's coming up, but first we'll take a look back at some recent press. Philadelphia public broadcaster WHYY was one of few outlets to report on an April 24th rally seeking the release of Mumia Abu-Jamal. The story included important information on Abu-Jamal, who is serving a life sentence for the 1981 killing of Philadelphia police officer Daniel Faulkner. The story noted that the case has drawn scrutiny over claims of police, prosecutorial, and judicial bias and misconduct, and cited new evidence released as part of the appeal process, including a note from a key prosecution witness asking the prosecuting attorney for money. The story included the voices of people who traveled from around the country to call attention to Mumia's case, his current state of health, he has a number of debilitating conditions and has just had heart surgery, and to put his story in a context of political prisoners here and around the world. I was still irked by WHYY using its lead paragraph to frame the story like this. Quote, the case has pitted Abu Jamal's supporters, including a long list of national and international celebrities who say he was framed, against police and their supporters who resent the attention given to a man convicted of murdering a fellow officer. Close quote. It bugs me because those were the themes decades ago when Abu Jamal was first convicted and sentenced to death, that he was a cause celeb and therefore, wink, wink, something, something about liberal Hollywood, no need to pay attention, and that the upset of anyone concerned about his deeply flawed trial or inappropriate sentencing was merely theatrical, because after all, he was convicted, wasn't he? Elite media at the time were open to straight-up lies. A 1995 Washington Post story led with a macabre account from Faulkner's widow about how when her husband's bloody shirt was held up in court, Abu Jamal turned around and smiled at her. Except attorney Leonard Weinglass and the court records show that he wasn't in court and the shirt was displayed. ABC's investigative news show 2020 used a number of techniques for their big 1998 piece. At one point, actor and activist Ed Asner is quoted saying, no ballistics tests were done, which is pretty stupid. But then host Sam Donaldson's voiceover cuts him off. But ballistics tests were done, he says, referring to tests that suggested that the bullet that killed Faulkner was the same caliber as Mumia's gun. But he didn't say that tests to determine whether the gun fired the bullet had not been done, nor tests to see whether Mumia's gun had been fired at all 
or if there were gunpowder residues on his hands. After that, the main story has been non-coverage. The late great media critic Ed Herman reported how the Philadelphia Inquirer wouldn't cover rallies and tribunals in support of Abu Jamal, calling them stunts. But when the Fraternal Order of Police bought a full-page ad in the New York Times, that merited a story. NPR canceled plans for a series of commentaries from Umia, who is, after all, a journalist, after Bob Dole threatened their funding. When Democracy Now! prepared to air commentaries, station KRTI out of Temple University canceled the show and all of Pacifica News, with a station vice president explaining, what's good enough for NPR is good enough for me. After a Vermont college aired a taped commencement address from Umia, Philadelphia lawmakers threw together something called the Revictimization Relief Act, dubbed the Silencing Act by many who noted that it curtailed not just prisoners' right to speak, but journalists and all of our right to hear them. Media's response, a shrug. The New York Times ran a piece from AP with the headline, Pennsylvania, Governor Signs Law to Help Protect Crime Victims. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. What hasn't Tucker Carlson done lately? Earlier this month, the primetime Fox News host touted the white supremacist Great Replacement Theory. Democrats, he cried to viewers, are trying to replace the current electorate with new people, more obedient voters from the third world. Every time they import a new voter, I become disenfranchised as a current voter. I have less political power because they are importing a brand new electorate. More recently, Carlson encouraged his acolytes, your response when you see children wearing masks as they play should be no different from your response to seeing someone beat a kid in Walmart. Call the police immediately. Contact Child Protective Services. Keep calling until someone arrives. What you're looking at is child abuse, and you are morally obligated to attempt to prevent it. Okay, you, a non-Fox watcher, say... Tucker Carlson is a dangerous humanoid, and I wish he didn't have a platform for millions of people open to that particular strain of weaponized ignorance. But enough people or sponsors must want it on the air, or it wouldn't be there. Well, here to help us see what's amiss with that idea and how we could disrupt it is Tim Carr. He's Senior Director of Strategy and Communications at Free Press, and he wrote the recent piece, Tucker Carlson's Racism, Paid For by You. He joins us now by phone from New Jersey. Welcome back to Counterspin, Tim Carr. Hi, Janine. How are you? I'm all right, but boy, you know, um, as media critics, we know it's important to expose the structure, the kind of workings of media, because it's somewhat hidden and because so much is predicated on it. You know, if it didn't have an audience, it wouldn't be on your TV because media is a market, after all. We know that that is a pervasive but misleading idea. When it comes to Tucker Carlson, it's not that he doesn't have fans. We know that. But what complicates the notion that he's on my TV because somehow I want him there? Well, you, like me, might remember the good old days of over-the-air broadcast television when we got our news and information for free. Unfortunately, at the time, you know, for my childhood, it was only like four or five 
local television stations. But we've now transitioned to this cable era where we can buy packages that provide us with hundreds of stations. And the economics of that is somewhat complicated because I think people who don't watch the Tucker Carlson show don't realize that regardless, they're still paying for Tucker Carlson's salary. And what I mean to say by that is that when we purchase a cable package from our provider, whether we have a satellite service or cable service like Comcast or a fiber service like Fios by Verizon, we pay a lump sum for a large package of channels. And that money gets distributed to those channels via what's called carriage fees. And for Fox News and Fox Television, that is the bulk of their income. Last year, they made about $1.6 billion from carriage fees. These are negotiated deals with their cable carriers that we all pay as part of our monthly bill, those of us who are still on cable and satellite pay TV services, which is the bulk of American viewers. And so it's a lot of money that we're paying, and it's average about $1.72 a month per person that goes to Fox News, even if we don't like that. So when I say Tucker Carlson's racism is paid for by all of us, and that's in fact true. And a lot of people don't really think about that. They don't think about the implications of carriage fees and how, unless we change that system, we're all complicit in some way in supporting uh, this sort of racism. Well, I think folks would like to know on hearing that, how can we stop it, you know? And it's not a new idea to try to stop it, you know? I mean, we've been back and forth on this for a while. Fair's Peter Hart wrote about, um, you know, responses to this in 2010, you know, and uh, he was r- reminding folks that, you know, when News Corp launched in 1996, they couldn't charge for Fox News. They had to pay their way onto cable. It was only as they got more political influence, more audience that they were able to charge and then triple these carriage fees that you're talking about. And I just want to throw in there one thing that that Peter wrote about. Then he was saying, why do we have to pay Sean Hannity's salary? (laughs) Same conversation, just a different person. But he noted then Fox head Rupert Murdoch's boast that he could name his price with cable operators, quote, cancel us, you might get your house burnt down, close quote. That was how Rupert Murdoch described his negotiating strategy. So all of that just to say this is not a brand new battlefield, but what are the ideas we're looking at now to undo this thing where we're paying for shows that we not only don't want, but that we really, really don't want. Well, there there are a couple of ways to address this. And some of the things that people have heard about are the sort of advertiser boycotts that have happened in the past whenever Tucker Carlson says something inflammatory. There are a lot of good organizations like Sleeping Giants and others who've mobilized advertiser boycotts. And that, and that, that is harm them a little bit. But again, it's, it's, not, it's only a smaller piece of the larger pie of income. So if you really want to look at the problem of carriage fees and address that, there's a few things you can do. One, we need to embolden these cable carriers, the cable companies like Comcast and Verizon and AT&T and Spectrum, to be a little more bold, to be a little more forthright in their negotiations with Fox News, if indeed the majority of their customers don't watch Fox News, which is true. Why do they feel obligated to pay such 
high carriage fees. So there is a sort of a public pressure campaign that can be very effective. Another thing that can be done is to promote or advocate for a la carte, which is a model for a cable subscription that allows each viewer to handpick the channels that they want to watch. There is a package of what are called must-carry channels that include local television stations, the PEG stations that might cover, say, the local city council hearings and some public broadcasting stations. But in addition to that, consumers should just be able to handpick, like you would pick from a dim sum menu, perhaps, the stations that you want and then pay accordingly. There have been a lot of legal hurdles that have been put in place for that a la carte option. And another thing that people are doing increasingly is called cutting the cord. Cutting the cord means that you take pay TV services out of your triple play, the package that you buy from a company like Comcast, and you get all of your television over the top via your high-speed internet connection. You then have the opportunity to subscribe to services like Hulu or Netflix and kind of reassemble your own television experience. There's still only a small percentage of Americans who've chosen the over-the-top cutting-the-cord option. So it's kind of complicated. There are a lot of things that can be done. What we really need to do is mobilize people and educate people who don't want to pay Tucker Carlson's salary that there are things that they can do. One of the things that you point out in the piece is that you know, when folks are talking about this, it might be presented as, why would you intervene with this radical strategy? It's actually the a la carte idea is something that happens already in other spheres like stock trading, right? That's right. If you choose mutual funds, you can choose funds that are socially responsible, that, for example, don't invest in energy extraction companies. Those are all choices that consumers make. And it's, so it's a little bit backwards. And, and, and it's, as you know, as someone who's followed media policy for quite some time, that a lot of the policies that have been put in place seem really backwards. They take choice out of the hands of consumers, whether it's choice for an internet connection, whether it's a choice for the, the type of cable stations that you subscribe to, and they put them in the hands of these large companies who, who have far too much control over the ways that we connect and communicate. So this has been, you know, a lifelong effort for me and the work that we do at Free Press is, is to try to put the public back into these policy conversations to make sure that we have control over our media experience. Well, let me just ask you, finally, when we were talking about a la carte back in, <laughs> back in 2010, 2012, one of the things that was part of the conversation was that if you're in a system where you pick what channels you want, despite what you're talking about, about the must-carry that might include local government and peg channels, that that might sideline or make invisible some smaller or niche channels that might only get out there as part of a package, you know? And I'm wondering, have we thought about new ways to address that part? That's a real concern because there are a lot of niche stations that cover immigrant communities that cater to other audiences that rely upon the bundle in order to reach, potentially reach a large audience. And so there are ways that you can manage that too. There's these ideas about skinny bundles where you actually create these kinds of packages that have a lot of public interest and diverse options in them. But when it comes to the premium stations and some of the controversial stations like Foxes, they leave that up to the viewer. One of the things that I've advocated for is a hate-free bundle 
a bundle where people can pay a fairly standard subscription rate minus the money that would go to Fox Television or Fox News or Fox Business News for all of the Fox channels minus the money that might go to One America News Network or Newsmax or any of the stations that have been spreading disinformation about the elections, about the COVID response, and fanning the flames of racism. So but that, that's potentially something that can happen. We'd need to gain some, some momentum in the organizing side to pressure cable companies to do that. I think that getting Congress and the FCC involved could also help persuade them to give these options to consumers. And we also are in finally an era where it is different than 10, 12 years ago. And I think media consumers are a little more accustomed to proactively seeking out sources that they might not see and talking to one another about what might be interesting and sharing in social media around big news outlets. That's how podcasts get out there. So I think public education, I just would say, would also be a big way of directing folks' attention to programming that they might miss if it can't get part of one of these bundling things. And I think longer term, we we also just need to have a reckoning with how we ended up with the media system that we have, where these commercial media outlets, in this case, it's the cable companies colluding with Fox News Channel to push white supremacist content. I mean, there's a long history of media being used to victimize impacted communities, black and brown communities. And we need to reckon with that as well. And to see that a lot of the controversy around carriage fees is rooted in a history of discrimination. We've been speaking with Tim Carr from Free Press. They're online at freepress.net. Thank you so much, Tim Carr, for speaking with us this week on Counterspin. My pleasure. A new Green New Deal was announced last week, though you might not have noticed based on media coverage. Corporate media coverage of climate change is disorienting in that journalists acknowledge that it's happening, it's life-endingly important, but then when it comes to what to do about this not imminent but already happening crisis – we go back inside the beltway again, and Senator so-and-so says any change to our energy systems will kill your job and force you to eat only lettuce, and that opinion needs respectful space. What if media turned the corner and acknowledged that anyone serious about averting the most devastating impacts accepts that major societal changes have to be made now, that those who are harmed will need help and those who continue to harm will need to be shown off the stage. Then we can have necessary conversations about our possible livable future, including naming the actors and the processes that stand between us and the changes we need to make. One critical piece of that conversation would include realities recently explored by our next guest. Lynn Paramore is Senior Research Analyst at the Institute for New Economic Thinking and author of the piece, and maybe I'm tipping her hand here, Meet the New Koch Brothers, the hedge fund activists wrecking America's Green New Deal. She joins us now by phone from here in town. Welcome to Counter. Been Lynn Paramore. Thank you so much for having me. Well, when we think about converting the economy to reflect the realities of climate disruption, we think 
the government should, and we think U.S. companies could. So my question is, who and what stands in the way of what government should and companies could do? Yes, well, there is a group of Wall Street financiers. They are typically called activist shareholders, you know, which kind of sounds like maybe it's a good thing. Activism is good, right? But these guys are actually the descendants of the corporate raiders that we used to hear about in the 1980s who would go in and buy a company, strip it down, fire all the workers, and head out with a bunch of cash. These hedge fund managers of today, and we're talking about guys like Carl Icahn, they are billionaires many, many times over, very, very powerful men. And I say men because they seem to be Mm -hmm. (laughs) always men. Mm -hmm. They are able to buy shares of a company like Apple, say, and then they can start telling the company what to do. They buy the shares and then they line up proxy votes. And then they might start pressuring the CEO through letters or maybe on social media or in, you know, other public forums. And they'll spend millions of dollars putting pressure on the CEOs and executives of a company to do what will enrich the shareholder in the short term. So what that usually means is something called a stock buyback. Now, what is a stock buyback? That's when a company buys outstanding shares of its own stock, thereby reducing the number of shares, which makes each share worth more money. So the hedge fund managers like that. It gives them a quick return. They buy the shares. They force the CEO to do stock buybacks, or they pressure the CEO. And now their shares are worth more, and they can dump them, head out of town with a quick bundle of cash, and leave the company to deal with the repercussions. Now, what are the repercussions for the company? Well, the money that the company spent on buying those outstanding shares in the stock buyback could have been used to develop new products. It could have been used for innovation. It could have been used to maintain and attract talent, all the kinds of things that you want happening in the case of a company that might be able to work with the government on a Green New Deal. You know, the government can't just snap its fingers and make electric cars or semiconductor chips or all of the products and technologies that are needed to create a sustainable future. It needs big companies with the know-how, the capital investments to get these things done. Let me just give you one example. Mm Intel is a company that makes semiconductor chips. You need these for all kinds of computer systems. You would need them to upgrade any electric grid. They're they're found in almost everything, your phone, your car, whatever. Not many companies have the capital investment capability to make semiconductor chips. Intel is the one American company that does. The leaders in this industry actually are in China, mostly in Taiwan. But the U.S. has Intel. Any Green New Deal is going to involve semiconductor chips, but Intel, instead of investing in its manufacturing, it has been pressured by a hedge fund manager to use its resources to jack up the stock price, and actually it's been pressured to get rid of its manufacturing arm and just be a designer of chips, in which case the United States wouldn't have any company that made semiconductor chips. So you can see how these hedge fund managers, in the interest of making a quick short-term profit 
really bleed companies of their capabilities and their resources so that they can't be leaders in technology. And guess who doesn't have this problem? China Mm -hmm. does not have this problem. Its companies don't do stock buybacks. So Chinese companies are free to use their resources to invest in research and development, pay the talent, create manufacturing plants, do all the things that we wish our companies were doing if they weren't caught up in these Wall Street games. Well, let me just confirm, all of this is legal. None of this is breaking the law, but it's still something that it's still not transparent exactly, you would say. I mean, you know, there's something, there's skullduggery, and yet it's perfectly legal. Well, it used to be unlawful. Mm -hmm. Prior to 1982, stock buybacks were considered stock manipulation, and they were not legal. But the Reagan administration came in, which was very friendly to Wall Street, and the law was changed. Now, there are a lot of people, including economist William Lozanek, who has worked on this issue extensively, who think that stock buybacks should be made illegal once again. I happen to agree with that. And there are more and more people in the political sphere who are beginning to understand this problem. Tammy Baldwin is a very good example. And Biden himself has a pretty good understanding of stock buybacks and the damage they cause. And he, for example, I think would be open to banning companies from doing this kind of Wall Street casino game playing if they enjoy government contracts in any kind of big Green New Deal project or infrastructure project. So that's a start. Banning companies from doing it as long as they are partnering with the government and, you know, getting taxpayer money to partner with the government on these projects, that would be a very, very helpful thing. And eventually it would be nice to just ban them altogether because these stock buybacks really do nothing except pump up the price of stock shares temporarily, it's really an illusion. A company's stock price isn't going up because suddenly it's making better products or it has some wonderful vision for the future. It's just a temporary boost that enriches wealthy executives and these hedge fund managers who, again, are already wealthy enough and they really don't need another super yacht. We've been speaking with Lynn Paramore, Senior Research Analyst at the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Thank you so much, Lynn Paramore, for joining us this week on Counterspin. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the National Media Watch Group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find them on our website, FAIR.org. The show's engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.